to take your Bible tonight to First uh, Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. Tonight's going to be uh, more of a topical type of message uh, on the sovereignty of God. And I've titled the message, The Lord is Sovereign Over All. And I want to look at this from the words of David to start out here in First Chronicles 29. We'll look at verse 10 down through verse number 13. And uh, there's, there's many, many things that we could look at with this topic. This is not going to be exhaustive by any means. Um, studying through it, we could easily do a, a drawn-out series on this very subject of this attribute of God. Uh, but tonight I want to give maybe a, an overview, maybe a, a quick-glance look at His sovereignty why that's important and how that affects us. Uh, one thing that has affected me greatly is understanding the sovereignty of God. It has given me great confidence, great comfort uh, in my Christian life and uh, just in trusting God as a whole. And, and so let's read this text and then I'll, I'll give some backdrop here and we'll, we'll come through it together. And we may not make all the references I gave you, there, but, but they're there for you to look at later if you want. First um, Chronicles 29, verse 10, beginning there, it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, your, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. I read those words of David, and uh, it causes you just to sit back in awe of our great God and how he's describing him. When we think about the sovereignty of God, we think about God's control, we think about our own life. Have you ever wanted to do something, but you simply could not do it? Have you ever planned to do something, but those plans did not go as you planned? You ever made a promise that you weren't able to keep? It happens to all of us, right? Why is it that things don't always go according to the way we would like them to go? The answer is because we do not have absolute control over all things, do we? We just don't. But what about God? How is it that God can plan something and it go exactly as he planned? How is it that God can fulfill every promise that he makes? The reason is because unlike us, God does have absolute control over all things. There's not anything that is not in his control. So when we look at the attribute of God's sovereignty, when God determines to do something, there's nothing that will stop it. Whatever God allows is what he has ordained, and all that God ordains is under his ultimate control. And so this is what we would call the sovereignty of God. Uh, The word sovereignty simply means to be the supreme power or authority to have ultimate control. And there's various words used through the Bible to describe this attribute uh, of God, depending on what translation you might be reading from. But regardless of what word is used, the attribute of God's sovereignty It is woven from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just something that's here and there. It is the thread that holds it all together. And so when we look at this in our text, David here, just to give you some backdrop, he's near the end of his reign as the king of Israel. He's given a charge to Israel as they're preparing for Solomon to be the next king, and they've given offerings towards this future temple that's going to be built there as a place of worship. 
And he prays here in a way that recognizes the sovereignty of God over all things, including the people of Israel, their land, their security, all the provisions they have. David recognizes that everything that they are and all that they have comes from the true king of the universe, and that's God. And so we understand from David's prayer here, David's prayer reflects the heart that we as believers should have towards God as well, that he is truly sovereign, that he is truly king over all things. So how does God's control impact the world, history, our own life? What do we learn from this from the scriptures? Notice a few points here tonight that I want to point out to you. And the first one is this, just point out in principle, the reality of God's sovereignty. The reality of God's sovereignty because his sovereignty is a reality. It's not a theory. It's a reality. It is a fact. It is a principle. It is a foundation point for us. And notice a few things about this, that God's sovereignty is firstly in his perfect character. His sovereignty is in his perfect character and nature, the very essence of who he is, right? Now, we know many things about the character of God. We could list many attributes. We list that he is holy, that he's righteous, that he's just, that he's love, that he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he's, uh, that he's jealous, he's all-powerful, he's all-present, he's all-knowing, he's all-wise. I mean, so many wonderful attributes to the nature and character of God. But then there's also this attribute of God's sovereignty. This is an attribute of God just as much as all the rest of them are. It seems that this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, it is often a neglected one, often a rejected one, and often a distorted one. I've always agreed with this this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, no doctrine in the whole of God's word, whole word of God, has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. The fact that the Lord reigneth is indisputable, and it is this fact that arouses the utmost opposition in the unrenewed human heart. When we think about God's sovereignty, why is it that man would hate that doctrine? Why is that? Well, the truth is because we like to think we're the ones in control. That's what it boils down to. We like to think that we're the ones who are in control. You see, Scripture teaches us unmistakably that God is the only sovereign who rules over all things by his infinite power and wisdom. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy about the coming of the Lord and what that will do when Jesus does come back. It will leave no doubt as to who really the sovereign is. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, he says about the coming of the Lord, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So so Paul makes it clear here that when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be any doubt in this world who really is in charge. Now, there's a lot of doubt today, isn't there? There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of denial. But when Jesus comes back, there is, there's, there's no room for doubt. It's just the way it is. The whole world, believing and unbelieving, will see who really is in charge. And so we as God's people, we recognize this distinct nature of God as the one who governs all things. And so does David. Look at what David says here in this verse. In verse 11, notice that in his prayer, he's, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the, is the greatness and the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. You see, David here extends not just to Israel as a nation and their own kingdom, but all that is under creation is his. That he is the head over all things. He goes on to say in verse 12, Both riches and honor come from you, and these words right here, and you rule over all. Notice he doesn't say you rule over some. You rule over all things. You see, David, the very king of Israel, recognizes the true king of all creation, that it is God alone. If only more people in this world recognize who really is in charge. Kings and leaders today think that they are the sovereigns, the rulers who dictate whatever they please, but they are sorely mistaken. Let's look at a a couple passages here. Look at Daniel, if you would. Go to Daniel chapter 4. I've got a couple we'll go to here tonight that will display the sovereignty of God, and this is one I think fits well in this particular instance. We see King Nebuchadnezzar, and we know Nebuchadnezzar. He was a very, very humble man, wasn't he? No. In fact, this, this, this particular passage, if you read before our text, displays the absolute sovereignty of God even over the will of man. Because he makes Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride, basically act like a beast, eats the grass, acts like an animal, all right? And so we can't really say that, well, God would never violate our free will. I'll get into that in a minute. God has every right to violate our free will. Say, well, why is that? Because he's God. We're not. Uh, And so, but after King Nebuchadnezzar goes through that, he comes to acknowledge something after he had been humbled by this event. He says in verse 34, verse 35, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. This is after he came back to himself from not being a beast. God released him from that, made him back to normal. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, I want you to notice this, what he says here. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, if there's not a text, that, that text to me is unmistakably clear as to the sovereignty of God in heaven and on earth that he will do whatever his will is. Jeremiah the prophet rightly affirmed such a thing in Lamentations 3.37. He said, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So you understand that God commands and things come to pass because he alone has the power, knowledge, and freedom to make that happen or allow certain things to happen. So when we look at God's sovereignty, I think this is a key point too. His rule over all things is dependent also upon the rest of his character and attributes. All of his attributes are woven together into the very being of who he is. James Montgomery Boyce says this, In order for God to be sovereign, God must also be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. If he were limited in any one of these areas, he would not be entirely sovereign. So you see how the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God tie into the absolute sovereignty of God. You cannot separate his attributes and leave off one for the sake of the other. You must have all of them to know the true God. So we look at God 
His sovereignty is essential to the rest of his characteristics. And I believe this too, that a God who is not sovereign, absolutely sovereign, is no God at all. He's not. Only a sovereign God can do what he wants to do with his love, with his mercy, with his grace, with his justice, with his wrath. And only God possesses all the characteristics of someone who can be absolutely sovereign. So you can see why we're not, so- why we're not sovereign, right? We're not all-powerful. We're not all-knowing. We're uh, not absolutely free. We are free creatures to make choices, but we are, uh, our choices are bound within our own sinful nature. We're not free beings in the sense of that, that, that category. So God is absolutely free and sovereign to do what he wants. Notice letter B, that God's sovereignty is with perfect causes. Perfect causes. Now, consider God's sovereignty and think about who alone could possess such a quality. Only someone perfect could possess absolute control with absolute power. Now, we would only want someone perfect to have this kind of sovereignty, right? Can you imagine if it wasn't that way? We've seen in history the ramifications of evil men who possess too much power and control. Take the Holocaust, for example. Think of Hitler and his evil. Imagine if he was sovereign, absolutely. That would be a horrifying picture, right? Because he's evil. But contrary to that, when we look at God, God is perfect in every way possible. He's righteous in every way possible. You see, his sovereignty flows from the very perfection of his being. So there's, there's nothing in him that is uh, evil or unrighteous to which his sovereignty would be abused to orchestrate against that which is in the good of his people. So he cannot go against his own nature, of his own righteous nature. Everything that the Lord is and does is in accordance with his righteousness. Psalm 145.17 says this, The Lord is righteous in some of his ways and kind in all his works. I do that sometimes just to make sure you're awake. Lasagna's setting in. He's righteous in all his ways. All his ways. Nothing God does in his sovereignty is unrighteousness. Is unrighteous. He always rules from that standpoint. But here's a, here's a few other ways that God rules in addition to ruling righteously. God rules with perfect wisdom and understanding. Perfect wisdom and understanding. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Beyond measure. Now, we, we live in a realm where we have to measure things, right? You know, we, we, we have to kind of try to timeline things out. And we live in the realm of time. We're uh, we live in the realm of measurements. But, but God's knowledge and wisdom and understanding, they are beyond measure. So the purposes are from his infinite wisdom that are far beyond our own wisdom. So we as finite human beings cannot comprehend the infinite wisdom of God. If you ever try to, you'll lose your mind because you can't do it. You can't do it. And that brings another question to bear, another reality. That means that you and I have zero right to question his love and how he chooses to exercise his sovereignty. We don't have the right to. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1.11. He said, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Notice this last statement, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how many things does God work according to the counsel of his will? Paul says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Secondly, God also rules in accordance with what pleases him. So he rules in accordance with his own infinite wisdom and understanding, but he also rules in accordance with what pleases him. 
Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Here's the reality. God's not obligated to do anything other than that which pleases him. You say, well, God did something that displeased me. He's not obligated to do what pleases you. He's just not. He's obligated to do what pleases himself. He alone is the perfect, infinite being. And so, therefore, we can conclude whatever pleases the perfect God flows from his perfect nature. Thirdly, God rules to bring himself glory. What truly is the chief end of God's sovereignty in all of his other attributes? It is his own glory. His own glory. All of creation, all of humanity is to know that God alone is the exalted sovereign God. The psalmist said in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He doesn't say, I might get there. He doesn't say, I might be exalted. He says, I will be. I will be. He's determining that his glory will be made known among the nations. Only a sovereign God can do that. Time does not allow us to dive into the extent of all of his ruling, but I want to point out one other text in Isaiah 46 for a moment. Isaiah 46 and verse 9 through 10. Here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What do you learn from God and how he operates in this text? He declares the end from the beginning. He doesn't wait to the end to figure out what the end is going to be, but he declares the end from the beginning. And that is why we see uh, scripture that teaches us how, how God and his counsel has ordained things in eternity past. So he does all things according to his pleasure. He has declared his own victory and glory. They're not left up to chance, and they are according to his perfect nature. Notice, thirdly, letter C, God's sovereignty is with, is, is in, is, uh, with perfect compatibility, or is, um, I put it another way, compatibility, or uh, what's another word I'm looking for? I'm getting lasagna brain. Forget it. You'll, if you don't know how to spell compatibility, look it up. <laughs> That'll be there for you. God's sovereignty is, 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 is in perfect compatibility with uh, us as created creatures, and that's what I was trying to get at. When it comes to God being in control, his sovereignty in all things, the question often arises, what about the choices of men? Does God's sovereignty eliminate the choices of men? Does it make us somehow to be puppets where we're just on strings? That's a, a common straw man argument against the sovereignty of God. The answer is no. Both are clearly taught in Scripture. God is in control, while man, he makes his own choices. We chose to be here tonight, didn't we? But at the same time, God sovereignly ordained that you be here. See, this is, this is somewhat where we see some mystery here. God exercises his will, often in the choices men make, while men are at the same time making that choice. It is a mysterious connection that only God knows perfectly. Proverbs 16.9 gives a little bit of light to this. It says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, God created mankind with their own mind to think, discern, make choices to live their life. But at the same time, God is in control of our lives. Now, I think it should be noted that, that there's a, there, it should be noted a different, difference in terms here. Um, that the idea of what's called free will is often very much misunderstood. 
What some call free will, I would call creaturely freedom because there's a difference. This is the truth that man has been created with a mind to think and make decisions in life, right? Everybody in the world, both unregenerate and regenerate, makes their own decisions every day. They live their life. They choose what they're going to wear. They choose what they're going to eat, uh, all these sorts of things. But the will of man, the internal will of man, is bound to its own nature. And what is the nature of man? The nature of man is sinful. So I don't like the term free will because it's often misconstrued. But when most people use the term free will, they're talking about creaturely freedom, that we have choices that we make as God's creatures, God's creation, right? But when it comes down to a free will, there really is no such thing. It is bound to our own sinful nature. That's what Scripture plainly teaches. See, our will is bound to that sinful nature that keeps us on that sinful path. And in order for that will to be changed, it must be made new. And how is our will renewed or made new? Through conversion, right? Through the new birth, through the process, through the act of regeneration, what God does in his people. But aside from the differences between creaturely freedom and free will, I wanted to note that because that's often a question. We see God's sovereignty and man's activity do not contradict each other, but rather they are compatible with each other in a way that God works. Now, I want to give you two examples of this. I think of King Saul. I noticed this when I was reading through that that book devotionally. I'd never seen it before, but Saul, before he was anointed king, he was sent to Samuel to be anointed as king, but he didn't know he was being sent to Samuel to be anointed as king. Saul's just going on about a normal day hunting for his donkeys that went astray. That's a normal thing of life. But what we read later is that uh, in 2 Samuel 9, 15 and 16, God tells Samuel the day before all this happens, I'm going to send Saul to you. I'm sending Saul to you so that you can ordain him or, or anoint him to him to, as, as king. So you look at that passage. God is telling Samuel, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will now anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, 2 Samuel 9, 15 and 16. But according to Saul in his day, he's just out looking for his donkeys, and they can't find the donkeys, so they say, well, let's ask the prophet how we can find these donkeys. You see, the sovereignty of God was working hand-in-hand with his own decision to go looking for the donkeys, but the whole time, God was governing that. Where Here's another example, all right? We're all aware of Joseph being sent to Egypt, right, by his brothers. We're familiar with that, Genesis 50, 20. At the end of that account, we see Joseph's telling his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We're all familiar with Joseph's account, right? They hated him, wanted him dead. They sold him into Egypt. What did God mean for good? Well, it's the evil actions of his brothers. Did God make Joseph's brothers do those things? No. Did he ordain those things? Yes. Two things working hand in hand that God has worked in. So you look at God's sovereignty, man's responsibility are seen side by side, in his providence. And this is where we understand that even when it comes to evil, the evil actions of Joseph's brothers, for example, even evil is under God's sovereign control. Friend, if evil wasn't under his control, this would be a terrifying world. We don't even realize how much God restrains evil of men. But what we find is that there is an intended purpose for it. Proverbs sixteen four: the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
Now, understand, this does not mean that God does the evil or tempts men to evil, but that God uses it. He's sovereign over it. Man is always responsible for his own actions, good or bad. And so the principle here is this, neglect God's sovereignty or man's responsibility is to become imbalanced and prone to error. And what I see today is that many, many groups want to focus on one for the sake of the other, rejecting the other. You must understand all of Scripture must be received in this manner. One side can't be ignored for the sake of the other. So this is where we see the reality of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty is seen in his perfect character. Uh, it's compatible uh, with man and how he's created him as a creature to operate and also in his perfect causes. Notice with me number two tonight. I probably put too much notes on here, so I'm going to come through this somewhat quickly. Bear with me. We see the range of God's sovereignty, and I want to clarify that. That's just for sake of alliteration. Harold knows how that goes, right? You've got to get another, another R in there. There is no limit to the range of God's sovereignty. But for this study, I put in just a few categories for us to look at that kind of cover overarching theme. And they're basic to what we understand already. God rules over the whole creation, letter A. God rules over the whole creation. We've seen this in, in, in briefly with what Nebuchadnezzar says. But when we look at what David says, what Nebuchadnezzar says, what the psalmist says in Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Who owns all of creation? God alone. All of creation shows his control over it. Who set in place the laws of nature? God did. He governs those things. Who, help, who alone can overturn the laws of nature and do opposite? God can, right? We've seen examples of that. He splits the Red Sea, walks on dry ground. Same thing for the Jordan River. He stops the sun a whole day for Joshua. That goes against the law of nature, right? Calming the storm with his voice, walking on water, feeding 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. God is sovereign over everything in his own creation. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, reveals Christ and his, and, his, and his creative act and reign over the universe. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together, or consist, as some might say. That, that hold together means uh, to come to be in a condition of coherence. They continue. They endure. They, they, they go on their way as they've been set. So, so everything in creation holds together and functions as it does because God is sovereign over it. As R.C. Sproul rightly said, there is no such thing as a maverick molecule, right? <laughs> There's no molecules out there doing their own thing. He's, he's in control of all of them. Letter B, God rules over every nation. God rules over every nation. This is something we need to remember. You know, the news and the media like to hype up all the chaos that goes on in the world. I don't really have to worry about it a whole lot. You know why? Because God is in control over the nations. Now, it's easy to say, oh, God, he's in control of creation. Yeah, he's sovereign in heaven and in space and everything. But what about the specific things like the nations? Is God in control over the nations too? Absolutely he is. Look with me, if you would, back again in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. And look at verse 19 through verse 23 for a moment. Daniel 2, verse 19 through verse 23. Notice that he says here, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Now notice this. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things to know what is the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise you have get in praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Now we know that this comes on the backdrop of Daniel interpreting or seeing the vision of the the kings or or the world powers that will come into place. But you see what God Daniel says that God does. He says he's the one who removes kings and sets up kings, right? This is further seen in the vision. We see later that, that through this statue that God reveals, we're going to see these world powers that will come in through history. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. How can there be such a specific nature to specific kingdoms in history? Because God is sovereign over history and the nations. He's sovereign over the powers of the world. Now, the nations think that there's some great power, but they only have power because God ordained them to have whatever power they have. If God chooses, he can strip them from it in a moment. Job 12, 23 says of God, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. You notice there's, there's kingdoms that no longer are in existence? Gone. Where, where, where is Babylon? Where is Medo-Persia? Where is Rome? Where, where, the, those world powers no longer dominate the world anymore, right? And here's what he commands. He commands the nations to submit to the sovereignty of his own son, King Jesus, in this messianic psalm. Psalm 2, 10, and 11. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's a call to leaders to submit to King Jesus. See, he is sovereign over this nation and its leaders as well. We ought to to remember that. I understand we all ought to uh, vote our conscience and vote biblically, but understand that in the end, ultimately, God's will is that which is accomplished. And oftentimes, he may not allow us to have who we voted for simply because it's judgment. You ever think of that? Now, I'm not going to be a prophet and say that we're under judgment. It's not my place to do so. But God certainly does work in those sorts of ways. So we have to understand who's in control over the nations and who's in charge. Can we think of an example in Scripture of God's sovereignty over a specific king and nation? Well, here's one example, and it's King Cyrus in Isaiah 44:28. God says of Cyrus, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, shall be, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, understand, Isaiah is writing about a king that's not yet been born. All right? Isaiah is writing about a king that's not yet in power. And yet God names this future king that's not yet been born and declares the very decree that that king's going to make. Well, how can he do that? Because God is sovereign over all nations and kings. To further prove that, Proverbs 21.1 leaves no doubt. The king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whithersoever he will, wherever he wills. So I often heard it this way. History is his story. That's exactly what it is. When we get to eternity and all of history is done, we will see plainly all of it was governed by the sovereign God who brought it all to pass for his own glory and praise. Letter C. God rules over all of redemption or salvation, 
you knew this one was coming. This one's plain. When it comes to redemption, we had better be glad that God's sovereign over that too. Because if he wasn't, we wouldn't have any guarantee of salvation whatsoever. But God is in control of redemption from beginning to end. God alone planned it and he's, he alone accomplished it. This is what we read from the Old Testament about the Savior who would come to the world and how he would die and redeem. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. How could a coming Savior be guaranteed in this way? Because God's sovereign over that. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning how redemption would be fulfilled, through whom it would be fulfilled in, is all due to the sovereignty of God. And so when we consider the cross of Jesus, Isaiah gives us further insight into why that came to pass. Isaiah 53.10, notice this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He will, of the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You notice that he's describing the same prophecy of Christ, his death. He says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Crush him. It gives insight into what our Savior endured for us. It was His will. So the entire life of Christ, His fulfillment of all these prophecies about Him are a clear show of God's sovereignty. Could any of those things have been coincidence? That's a preposterous idea, an illogical idea, an impossible idea. Jesus came into the world to fulfill everything that God had ordained so that he would die on the cross and pay our penalty. Acts 2, 22-24 is another text that describes that from Peter. We've gone to that in depth before, but I'll read it. I won't spend time here. Where Peter preaches, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite and plan and foreknowledge of God, their sovereignty. You crucified and killed, there's man's own actions and responsibility. By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right there, you see the death of Jesus. It was a fixed decision. And yet at the same time, God used the actions of men to accomplish it. But not only does God fulfill the requirement for redemption, he also sovereignly applies that salvation to his people. He is sovereign over all aspects of salvation, including who believes and who doesn't believe. Every sinner, understand this, naturally abides in rejection. He's bound to his sin, right? He doesn't want God. The only way any sinner comes to know genuine salvation is by God alone drawing him to that salvation. And that is a sovereign work that only God can do. It's not in our capability to do that. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So here's the reality. If God was not sovereign and did not draw sinners, there's not any of us that would be here tonight. None of us. But the opposite is true. The opposite is true. God does draw sinners through the gospel message all according to his own will. 2 Thessalonians 2 displays this, 13 through 14. I'll read this briefly. 2 Thessalonians 2, this is the last text we'll go to. 13 and 14, notice that he's writing to this church and he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God from us, 
but when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. I'm in the wrong place. I'm in First Thessalonians. I need to go over one book. Lasagna brain. I might coin that term. I might trademark it. Lasagna brain. Second Thessalonians 2, you look at verse 13. It says, but we had always to give thanks to, to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at this text and the multiple others, who chooses whom? It's the Lord. It's the Lord who chooses us. And so this reveals his sovereign nature in calling his own elect to himself. Do we have a right to question that? We don't. We may not fully understand it, and that's okay, but we don't have a right to question it. We must believe all that God has revealed. So God's sovereignty, understand, it is exhaustive over all creation, all of salvation, and all the nations, and everything else that you could name. There's not anything outside of his control. Number three, the response to God's sovereignty. And this is just a couple points of application that have affected me, and I pray they'll affect you as well. I want you to see our confidence, the Christian's confidence, must be in God's sovereignty. What must this knowledge of God's control over all things bring us to? It ought to bring you to trust Him. To trust Him. He is the perfect God with all power and control. That means we can trust Him in absolutely all things. James Montgomery Boyce again says this, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, lies at the root of all admonitions to trust in Him, to trust in, praise, and commit one's ways to Him. You see, the whole world and our own lives, every detail, it's in the hands of a sovereign, loving God. You know, we used to sing a song as a kid, He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole world in His hands. When you're a kid and you're singing that and you th- it makes you see how big God is, right? What's that literally mean that he's got the whole world in his hands? It means he's the sovereign over the whole world, including our lives. And I can tell you this, I would not want to dwell in a world where there's one minuscule thing that's out of God's control. If there's anything that's out of God's control, that's a danger to me. It is. There's not anything that's out of his control. There's no one more trustworthy than him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. That's our natural tendency, right? We come to something we don't understand or it's uncomfortable and we begin to evaluate. We have our own understanding and we're processing and we're trying to think, 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 think through it. But we're not immediately trusting in God with what that is. So the Proverbs writer says, Trust Him with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding because you may not even understand what's going on. Might later. Too often we overvaluate things. You see, the things that seem out of control are always under His control with His wise purposes. Because, because of this, our confidence must be in the sovereignty of God. When the early church was burdened on behalf of the mandate to quit preaching Jesus, Pharisees and the leaders had just told Peter and John the apostles, stop or else. What's the church do? Well, they pray. But here's what I notice about their prayer. 
how they open their prayer. It's a beautiful prayer in Acts 4. Go study it. But Acts 4, 24, they, they lifted up their voices as a church and they prayed to God. And notice how they address him. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Their confidence is in the fact that God is in control over all things, even this mandate that contradicts their commission. And that's where our confidence must be, is in the sovereignty of God. Letter B is also our comfort must be in God's sovereignty. Our comfort. Comfort is rooted in our confidence of God. Because God is working all things according to his infinitely wise counsel, we can have comfort in him. His sovereignty sovereignty is a comfort to us, especially in the fiery trials of life. Because it's in the fire of trials that God is still in control and working those things for our good. Now, we're probably tired of hearing this verse. It's often used wrongly. But Romans 8.28 tells us we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Do we really believe that? What does he mean that things are working for good? Well, we see ultimately in that text that he's bringing about our own sanctification, more into conform to the image of his son. You know what he uses to do that sometimes? He uses trials, hardship. And so the sovereignty of God is the only thing, the only reason that he can work all things together for good in our life as Christians. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, when you go through a trial... The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And everything that I experience, I learn that more and more. Because I'm one that has to have control. I like having control. I mean, when we're watching TV, guess who has the remote? This guy. If Bethany takes the remote, I take it back. (laughs) If she's in there watching TV with the remote, say, hey, honey, hand me the remote. I'm that guy. I think most of us are that way to some degree. But ultimately, it's not me who's in control of the things that I go through. Even if death is God's will for me, I rest in that perfect purpose, if that's what he wants. The saints who had been martyred for their faith cry out to the Lord in Revelation 6.10. They cry out to him and say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They understand, even as slain saints, that God is sovereign and he'll bring justice in his own right time and it will be in the right way. So God's sovereignty should be at the forefront of our thoughts. So we ask ourselves, do we believe these truths? Well, if you're going to be a Christian, believe the Bible, you have to. (laughs) You have to. The control of God is so abundantly clear in the Scripture and there are deeper aspects that are beyond our comprehension. We won't deny that. But we cannot negate what has clearly been written. We must believe all of it. And in believing in the sovereignty of God, we find great comfort, peace, and joy in in knowing that no matter what happens in this world or in my life, there's one person who's in control, and it's the God I know. The God I know. 